As the soft silhouette of 2019 begins to fade like a back-to-the-future photograph and the rays of 2020 begin to peek over the horizon, I'm lost in thought of all the great people I had a chance to talk with this year. It was not a year of extensive voice preservation, unfortunately, but the quality of voices and legacies added to the archive certainly made 2019 a valuable year for fish stories. The voices were not the only highlight of this past year. We created our ambassador program, a group of passionate professionals in the fishing industry who believe in the mission of fish stories. Check out all of our ambassadors or apply to be a part of the team at fishstories.org. In June, I was honored to give a TED Talk at TEDx Rapid City, South Dakota. 300-plus influencers congregated to hear about inspirational ideas worth spreading. My idea, as you might have guessed, was all about fish stories and how they deserve to be told. The talk is not yet available online, but I'll sure let you know when it is. The gist? It's difficult to record angler voices, but so worth the effort. The voices, though, are really what made 2019 a great year. We had some doozies. Without further ado, here are my favorite snippets from the archive in 2019. I hope you enjoy it. We start off in Aberdeen, South Dakota, where I met snapper Dave Sawatsky. He loves fishing for snapping turtles, even though he's only a novice. Thanks to my friend Casey Wisemantle from the Aberdeen CVB and HuntFishSD.com for making this story happen. You want to watch your line and, here? Yeah. Oh, you might... See all of those dots right there? What's dots? All turtles. Where? Where? In that water right there? See them? No. All of those uh, dots there. They're about yay big. Every one of them is a turtle. I'll show you where that is. I, see, I, I, I see really... I really don't see any dots, I, I guess. See some rings. Can, see that guy right there? Uh, in the, in the green right there? In yep. the green stuff? Yep. He's got his head sticking yeah. out. Okay. That's a big one. Where? Right over there. Hot, you have to have an eye for this to, to see it. But yeah, that's a really big one. Can I, can I ask you your name and where you're from? Uh, David Sawatsky. I live four miles north of here. And we're in Aberdeen. What's this, what's this called? I don't even know what they this call this. The Foot Crick. Crick. Oh, yeah. Foot Crick. Foot Crick out of Richmond Lake. And yeah, that's and the runoff from Richmond, Richmond Lake. I started up north, and I've been working myself south, and I got a lot better luck here. How, how long have you been fishing for turtles? Two weeks. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a rush. You have no idea the rush that you get when you start pulling and you feel it. He's there. You never know how big he's gonna be. But I get a rush, just like going elk hunting. <laughs> you you compare elk hunting to snapping turtle fishing. Yep. That's what it does. I get such a rush. Um there ain't no drug in this world that will give you that rush. The next bit of audio I found after having a conversation with Jens Lund. At one time, he came through South Dakota and interviewed a legendary walleye angler by the name of Bob Prop Sr. I was fortunate enough to find the interview locked away in the South Dakota State Historical Society archives, and they were kind enough to sell me the rights to adding it to the Fish Stories archive. Part one, in its entirety, is at fishstories.org, and well worth your time. Oh, look, he's... Oh, I'll bet he's coming right in. Yeah. You watch. Yeah. Pull around back a little. Hey, did you guys catch any? 
Yeah. What'd you catch? Walleyes. Where? Everywhere. We Everywhere? Couldn't go, we couldn't go anywhere without catching. You're shitting me. Honest to God. First batch we caught right between the bridges right here. And then we went up all the way up to the spillway. Caught, caught them there. We kind of went along the shore over the dam. There was no place where we were. No kidding. Where we couldn't catch them. What's his name? He's a guy, didn't he? Yeah, that's Bob Props. Bob Props. Yeah. Kid! Where's Bob? Bob Props. Where? Bob Props. Hell of a good guy. Oh, and that yeah, red pickup. Yeah. name? Yep. Yeah, you do. Yeah. They just slammed them. They couldn't go anywhere without catching walleye. Well, let's see. Oh, Pontoons. Pontoons are. Well, you got to have a champion guide, too. You know, that helps. Well, let's see. It sure did. That's right. Yeah. Well, he's going right to the center. What do you got? You got a live well in there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We don't need minnows, huh? No, we can use crawlers, huh? Yeah, we were just using crawlers. You could. Didn't make any difference to use a straight hook or if you put a spinner on. We couldn't do anything without catching fish, no matter where we went. That's what the calendar says. It's a good weekend to be fishing. Never mind them calendars. Believe me. For every one that counts, there's ten that it didn't count. This next bit is not yet in the archive. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm very excited about the story and telling it to the rest of America. Rod Ofte is a farmer, rancher, and consultant from Wisconsin. He's a part of the Fishers and Farmers program. His place is unbelievable. In 2020, you'll hear more about it. So Fishers and Farmers is a, a private public partnership, if you will, with the Fishers having a representation from each state in a person that's usually a wildlife or NRCS person uh, or a DNR biologist. Um, and then the farmer being summoned from the egg community. So in Iowa, it's... Uh, Adam, who's with Iowa Soybean, in, in Minnesota, it's Steve Soderman with the corn growers. I'm in Wisconsin as just a, you know, as a rotational grazer, so a different part of the egg, egg uh, field. Uh, I guess what makes it really unique is, A, we're not just our own state. We come together in different places to talk about problems and, and ideally bring solutions. And I think because you have the, the government working in a circle, each one of these folks um i mean first of all we're lucky we've got some great people jack lauer you know they they love what they do and they're extremely passionate about it and in by working together both from a practice standpoint and a policy standpoint we can make big change and that's that's what makes it fun i mean it's it's a you know zero paying job but you get to know people you know where their hearts are and it's fun to work with them and uh the funding we have heidi coilers our uh she works with the fish and wildlife service she is our coordinator, which is funded by uh, by National Fish Habitat Partnership, um, and then depending on our activities and interaction, and they really love the you know the farmer-led watershed networks and activities. Depending on our projects and things, we get different amounts of funding that we then refund to uh, state partnerships. So, and we try to be you know fair. We try to build a matrix. So we try to reward people for their service and for effectiveness. Um, and you know evenly distributed all throughout states so usually like each state will get at least their best project funded sometimes some states have a lot of projects some states don't have any projects um but anyway it's that's a neat uh a neat group and uh um i think just an example when when there's a bit of money but it's more the attitude for me 
that makes us all feel responsible. And then all of a sudden, you know, because there are a lot of terrible DNR folks that I think get joy out of being a pain in people's tail. But, you know, for every bad one, there's 10 really good ones. And back to Matt Mitro, who is our biologist and who's the co-chair on Fishers and Farmers. So he's done this fish census and he's, and I would, you know, we razz each other and I'd, I'd always tell him that yeah, the fishing is terrible versus when I was a kid. Yeah, but Matt's a scientist, so he's always, he's always extremely calm, but he's a good listener. And uh, so I would say, you know, we, yeah, you catch a ton of trout. So in the fish census one year, he get, it's approximately 1,300 feet they shocked. They got 1,286 trout. I mean, yeah, it's a fish a foot. I mean, come on. <laughs> so you can walk the whole stream and never not walk on fish. But my point is, you know, I'd rather go down and when, like, when I was a kid, we fished to enjoy a fish meal on the Sunday. And that was a part of the, the you know, thing. And we'd go down and catch three nice ones and feed the family. And, and now you've got to really got to work for that. And I think part of it is a lot of the modern fishermen think it's a pride thing. They won't keep fish, which is not necessarily good. Um, but again, Matt, being the good listener that he is, said, you know what, after a couple of years of Raz, and he said, will you, will you work with us and do something kind of radical? I said, shoot. And his idea, if I recall, was to remove everything under nine inches, every fish under nine inches, and see what would happen. <laughs> and let's take them to a place that's depleted. It's not a natural fishery like this is. This is they never plant fish here anymore. They just thrive in the natural habitat. So we did, and of course, the next couple of years, growth rates doubled, or they, they were significantly higher. And I think Matt was kind of surprised. It seems like common sense, but of course, they'd have they had more food. They weren't competing anymore. And I was happy because every fisherman, of course, I would talk to, didn't tell them what, what we did. How's the fishing today? How's the fishing today? Great. Amazing. Best ever. Great. Amazing. So there was zero impact on the fishing experience, but the fishing quality got better. So that's a good example of, again, just listening. He doesn't have to do his dogma. doesn't have to do what, you know, yeah, what he wants or what he thinks is right. But, hey, you know what? We're all here because, you know, his job is because people are paying for fishing licenses. And so if he can make that a better experience, you know, he will. So is the ultimate goal of the fishers and farmers, is it is it to inspire other people to do similar things? I think so. I think it's uh, it's a good PR move by, you know, Fish Habitat. Because in the big picture, they're putting, you know, 150000 let's say, on a five-state-wide and let's say we make an oxbow, you know, when I first think of an oxbow, I'm like, oh my God, you know, one oxbow in one stream of one state doing zero. But, you know, certain people learn and then you have a farmer that sees it. And then the farmer says, oh, you know what, I got a cat and I could probably do something like that. And I think that's the cascading effects of things like that that, that can happen through sharing the experience. Daryl Bauer is a fisheries biologist in Lincoln, Nebraska. To him, fishing is more than just catching fish. The passion is strong with this one. Check out his other stories in the archive, especially the one about his first muskie, one of my favorites. Do you remember the day when you decided you wanted to do this work? Yeah, you know, and you can, I can get a little emotional about some of these things too. You know, I remember in junior high, I decided I wanted to be a fisheries biologist. And I've always loved to hunt fish. And probably, you know, and I love to hunt, but the fish, fishing's a little more. And, um, you know, every boy growing up who loves to fish, you know, you think, oh, God, what can I do? Man, it'd be nice to be a professional fisherman. Well, honestly, there's darn few guys that make a living doing that. And the ones who do, do a lot of traveling, and, and it's not an easy life. 
And my dad, my dad worked in the airline industry, but he had a friend that he worked with who used to be a school teacher. And we had him over for supper one night and, you know, I got along real well with him. And we were talking and I've kept notes of all my fishing trips since I was like 10 years old. And the conversation got to that. And um, this guy, Winston, was his name. The, my folks told him, oh, you got to tell Winston about your fishing notes. And he made the comment to me then. He says, you got to do something in biology. Just because I was writing stuff down and taking these observations and everything. And that just clicked in my head. So even in junior high then, it was like, I hate a fisheries biologist. You know, or a lot of people would say, you know, a marine biologist or something like that. But... You know, I'm in Nebraska, I'm in the middle of fresh water, so it's fisheries biologists, and that's always been kind of what I had my sights on. And so at a relatively young age, I just figured, man, that's that sounds like something I'd love to do, and here I am. Um, I've always loved to fish, you know, and so I've had, you know, fishing buddies, dad, Uncle Ivan, just love spending time with them. You know, and, th and that's the other reason I have a passion for it. <clears throat> it's always been a, about family, too. You're still pretty passionate about fishing with your family? Oh, your yeah, family every members? chance we get, you bet. You know, um, and my kids are growing up now. You know, Daniel moved out of the house this fall, and so don't get to fish as much with him as I used to. But, you know, every time we go, if, you know, one of the kids or my nephews or somebody... I'm going fishing. You guys want to come along? Let's go. So, yep. It was that way with my dad and grandpas and, and uncles, and it's that way with our kids now, too. What do you miss most about fishing with your dad and your Uncle Ivan and your grandpas and stuff? What do you miss most about that? You will have me crack, no. Sorry. No. It's who I am. Um, you know, it's just that time we spent together. And, you know, we're guys, honestly, there wasn't a lot of talk, and, and sometimes, you know, we'd be fishing together, but, you know, I'd be fishing here, and Dad might be 50 yards down the bank, or Uncle Ivan's around the corner on the next hole, you know, but we're just together all the time, you know, and, and enjoying that time in the outdoors, and, you know, they you built that love. That's just been part of our family. You know, the outdoors has been what we've loved to do together for as long as I can remember. And so they just encouraged that and fostered that. And that's just what we do. You know, we get together at holidays and stuff and yeah, we'll feast together and play games together and all that, but we're going to slip out and do some hunting or fishing while we're together too. So that's always been just part of a, both sides of my family. Bruce Condello was another passionate angler I had a chance to meet in Lincoln, Nebraska. He loves big bluegills, so much so that he created a site titled BigBluegill.com. For everyone listening, this is how you manage a fishery for bluegills. Listen and learn. Um, the traditional way of thinking with bluegill, and I heard this many times growing up, is every bluegill you catch, throw it on the bank. And... I, that just blew my mind. I always thought, well, I guess this is what people do, but now it's become much more sophisticated over time. And I'll give you an example. If you were going to manage 
say a one acre body of water, which there are many in Nebraska and tens of thousands throughout the country that are privately owned, and then some uh, public waters that are about that size, that we found that, that some of the methods you can use can really drive the population of bluegill to not only be healthy and viable, but have a lot of um, size structure that, that includes smaller fish, medium fish, big fish, but all healthy. But then we always like to see those trophy fish at the top end. And that's one of the things that really gets the excitement going, a picture of a one pound bluegill or one and a half pound bluegill. So like one of the things we might suggest to somebody with a, with a one acre pond would be, uh, first of all, to learn to identify the difference between a male and a female bluegill. It's not really hard to do. There's, there's plenty of pictures online, including on bigbluegill.com. Once you've been able to identify the difference, if you can figure out which are the parental males, once you've done that, that's the key. That's the holy grail to bluegill management. If you can identify parental males, those are the nest guarding males, the ones that are going to be building the nest, guarding the nest, guarding the fry, those fish, you want to release those over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, it's best to not even really push them too hard when they're on the nest. Even if you're releasing them, it's best to not fish them too hard. Maybe if you want to go get a couple, that's all right. That's fine. But if you see 40 males, parental males, on the nest, you don't want to go catch all 40 of them. You want to leave them alone a little bit. Because what happens is, if you can leave those fish on the nest, the younger fish that don't have opportunities to get on the nest, now will put on the feed bag. And they're going to grow faster and bigger because they're going to try to be competitive with those bigger males next year. And so what happens is you get this slightly younger group of fish, maybe two and three-year-old bluegill, that are going to now grow and catch up to and even surpass this is the length and weight of those parental males. And so you're constantly allowing this younger group of fish to accelerate in their growth. Now, contrary to popular belief, you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, that's a female bluegill, you've got to release it, that helps the population. Turns out this really isn't entirely true. If you really want to hypermanage a one acre pond, the best fish to harvest are your six to eight inch females you're very unlikely to ever over-harvest those fish. The number of young of the year that you have recruited every year really has nothing to do with how many females you have in the lake. Two or three females have enough eggs to populate an entire lake every year. If a one-acre lake has 500 adult fish in it, you're going to have 500,000 eggs from just a very few females. So the population isn't driven by harvest of females, it's driven by available appropriately sized zooplankton that you're going to have every year. So you can go ahead and harvest those small to medium females. They're going to be delicious. They're going to, I mean, we very much are in favor of catching and keeping bluegill. They're one of the best tasting fish in the world. But it tastes even better to eat a seven and a half inch female than it does to eat a nine inch male because you know that you're helping to drive this trophy population that everybody wants in their ponds. So feel free to harvest some of the female fish. Feel free to harvest maybe some of the lower quality males, maybe fish that are struggling a little bit. They don't have to be super skinny, but you'll learn to recognize which fish are thriving in any particular environment. So smaller females, maybe a little skinnier males, leave all the parental males. Next thing you know, you start seeing nine inch, 10 inch fish. Maybe even if you're really lucky, 11 inch fish. So it's completely, everything's been turned on its head since the 1970s. Do you have a pond or? I live on an association lake. Okay. And bigger lakes like that are harder to manage the way that a one acre lake would be. So 
Um, we've got it set up so you can pretty regularly see a 10-inch bluegill, which is exciting for me. But in a lot of the smaller ponds that I've managed, we, we will regularly see bluegill in Nebraska that are pound and a half and regularly see bluegill in some of the other states that we manage that'll reach two pounds. I first met Sean Lazat one sunny Easter morning in Rapid City. We finally had a chance to sit down in the back room at Dakota Angler and Outfitter in Rapid City to talk about his passion for fishing. One of my favorites that he told was the story about his second ever guide trip. Do you remember your first guide trip? I do, actually. Uh, the first one was, um, he was a pharmacist from here, uh, just starting to get into it, and he went full bore and ordered everything he possibly could, uh, high-end stuff, and so he had really high expectations on how he wanted to, to learn, and I ended up guiding him a few times. Um, but then he just, like, as soon as he learned, he went and did his own thing. And we don't, we don't hear from him anymore. My second most memorable trip in the beginning, I had two ladies who were super cool. I mean, they were, they were just talkative, and usually ladies are a little bit quieter because, you know, with the man sport type of deal. And they were just, they just want to catch some fish and do whatever. Well, within the first 20 minutes of fishing, the lady had the line wrapped around her toe of her boot. She picked up her foot, lost her balance, and fell head first into a creek that was swollen in April. And I, I mean, I, I, I took my pack off, and I got in all the way, you know, past my belly button, and pulled her up to the shore. And it was cold, like we were wearing coats. So I said, oh, I'll just take your waders off. Um, and she ended up laying on the hill facing up and draining all the water or draining all the water out and she fished the rest of the trip but when she wrote she wrote her number and her name down uh so i could send the pictures in her email i couldn't understand what she was writing she was so cold it was just it was crazy and then she ended up coming back with her two nephews like six or seven years later and I had no idea, you know, I, I, I'd already forgotten. She's like, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, no. I said, Should I? She goes, I bet you do. And so she's, she said, I'm the one that fell in. I was like, oh my, I still talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> so she didn't fall in that time uh, and she did really good. So, but that, that moment with her catching those fish at the beginning of her, she wanted her nephews to see that. And to know, and they came all the way here from like Missouri to do it. So, pretty cool. In November, I was given an opportunity to sit down with Samson Bucci and his uncle Johnny. Both of these guys are creating massive legacies in the outdoors. I asked Uncle Johnny if he was proud of his nephew. He had a pretty cool reply. How proud of you are are you of Samson? I'm proud. I'm proud he he did what he wanted to do. He went to college, got his degree. Like I said, when he was growing up, he told me he was going to be a park ranger and he's going to be a policeman. And I said, go for it. I know for Samson and I bonded when he was young. And that's how we got together with his, my brother's son here. And uh, that's how we got fishing. And then I went off to the service and everything else, came back. And we, 
He was up. I think he was up here yet. Yeah, because he was playing college football. Yeah. yeah, up here. He was gone, didn't he? He got his job, and I started coming up here, and I was so proud of him. I told him, you're doing what you want to do, and you're having fun, and don't let no people stop you. The, the thing is to have fun when you're working. And when you're fishing, have fun. Somebody need help? Show them how to do it like I showed you how to do it. Some little kid need to go fishing? Take a kid fishing. I do it yet today. I'm 68 years old, and I take little kids fishing with me when they want to go. I love it. Teach them how to fish and everything. And like I said, they yell, well, I got one. I said, you, you caught it? You bring it in. I still say that today to any kid I take out fishing. I don't care who it is, a little girl or anything. You caught it? Well, I got twin granddaughters, and Samson and his daughter came up to Minnesota last summer and fished. And, Grandpa, I got a big fish. You caught it? You bring it in. That's my thing. But I am so proud of him. He did what he wanted to do. He said what he's going to do, and he did it. I am so proud of him. Lance Valentine is a charter captain on the Detroit River out of Flint, Michigan. His passion for fishing runs deeper than just catching fish. A great ambassador to the sport. Very few of my favorite fishing memories have anything to do with fish. You know, they have to do with being on the boat with my dad or my granddad or being in the river with my granddad. Um, uh, you know, my dad just lost his, his lifelong best friend, was killed in a boating accident in February uh, down in Florida. And he would come up every year and we would spend three days you know, fishing, they started coming up to the Detroit River where I have a boat. I do a bunch of charters on the Detroit River in a marina. They started to come up, and Uncle Art would bring his boat, and my dad and him would fish. Now, Uncle Art can't see his hand in front of his face, and my dad doesn't know which way north is with a compass, right? So these two guys are going up and down the Detroit River, right? They're, they're running around. I'm like Every time they left, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just hope they get back. But they would wait there, and I would pull into my slip, and I have a covered slip and a little area there to sit, and I would pull in after every afternoon trip, and they would be sitting there waiting to go to lunch. That's a cool thing. You know, so um, as many fish as I've caught, you know, I've caught fish. I, I guided a customer to a 15 and a, in a 15.33 pound. I've caught 14.18 pound walleye. Uh, I've won tournaments. I've won big fish awards. I've traveled all over the country. Uh, most of my favorite memories and the ones that really get me excited about fishing have nothing to do with the fish we caught, but the people, the places, or the things that were happening when, when we were fishing. Bruce Mosier is the inventor of the Ice Buster Bobber, the only bobber I use when ice fishing. He tells the story about the first Ice Buster Bobber ever created and the fish that was caught with it. Well, back in the 80s, I ice fished a lot, and I was pretty much sick and tired of my line freezing to my bobbers, or bobbers freezing to my line. And all the bobbers at that time, the line went through the top, out the bottom, so no matter what, they always froze. So I kept playing around, playing around, and pretty soon I came up with the concept of the Ice Buster Bobber. So I designed it from like a Tipperillo cigar, the bottom red base, and I kind of went from there. And my buddy was uh, uh, worked CNC machines and stuff, so he put it on a computer and figured out what we needed. Then I just had to venture off and find the right plastic so it wouldn't break. So it's pliable when it's freezing out. And then I found a foam company and I put the two together and voila, I had the first Ice Buster Bobber. Did you sell it on your own for a while or what, what did you do when you first invented it? Well, basically, like all my products, I made it for me first. 
And then once I, okay, here's the story with the very first one. Okay. So I came up with this idea, and three years later, I finally had the correct piece of foam, the correct bottom. I found the correct glue that was waterproof, stuck the two together. It was November 3rd, it was deer hunting, and it was so cold, it was freezing out, way below zero. And on a, that was Saturday, it's Sunday, everybody went home, and I went, I'm going ice fishing. So my wife thought I was nuts, and I packed up a few things, and I went out to Maple Lake, and in this breezy shore, breezy point resort, I knocked on the door, and she was a little owly. She said, what do you want? And I said, I was wondering if I can go out and ice fish. Are you crazy? It just froze over last night. Well, can I go or not? Go ahead if you want to kill yourself. I said, thanks. So I slid out on about an inch, inch and a half ice. I had a hatchet, chipped two holes. It's getting dark, so I put my bucket down, put the Coleman lantern on top, pumped it up, fired that up. So then I pulled out my brand new bobber, the very first one. So I checked the depth, set the stop knot, everything's correct. And then I uh, put a sucker minnow on, sent it down. And once the bobber stood up correctly, I jigged it twice and I'm like, yeah, this is gonna work. And as I put my rod down, I was gonna grab my other rod and set it up. And my bobber went down and I watched it. So there's no snow, it's just glare ice, it's dark. I could watch his bobber slowly moving underneath the ice. And I went, this is a big walleye, it's not wiggling. So I grabbed the rod, and I reeled it up till I felt pressure, and I set the hook, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is a big walleye. Back and forth, back and forth. It finally surfaced about seven feet away. It hit the bottom of the ice, and I'm like, holy smokes. Yeah, then the fight was on. I was all wound up. By the time I got up, it was 32 inches. Oh my gosh. No so, way. yeah, so I threw it in a bucket, and the, most of the, all the tails sticking out, and I filled it with water, and I ran up to the resort and I knocked on the door and she's like what do you want now I said oh, I'm gonna let this fish go can you take a picture for me please holy smoke she says comes back with a Polaroid I'm like well it's better than nothing so she took a picture and I ran back and flushed it in the hole and off it went and I was happy there are so many more stories from 2019 that I love but you'll just have to go into the archive to listen to them I just want to say thanks to everyone who's supported the archive over the years Please consider being a true fan to keep the archive alive and growing. Record your stories and the stories of those you care about, and keep them around for future generations. Fishstories.org is the place for all things fishing stories. I'll end with a short one from yours truly while fishing the Minnesota Driftless area with the Tuesday tires. Here's to 2019, everyone. Catch you again in 2020. Well, I'm in an undisclosed location in southeastern Minnesota. And I've got to set the scene for you on this because (laughs) as a great blue heron flies over my head. Huh. (laughs) We're we're fishing this, this creek. It's a creek, but it's pretty much a river. And there's this back area of this creek that is just low and slow and muddy and there's logs and trees. and It just doesn't look like a trout would live here. But there are trout in here. They are few and far between, but there are trout. And uh, I caught, I've been catching some nice brown trout, you know, 14 inchers, we'll call them. 
and I see a, a decent trout sitting next to this big down tree in the water. And again, it's about 14 inches. And I cast, <clears throat> and I was going to go to cast to it. I'm standing at the standing at the base of this tree, and I'm a, I'm literally about 10 feet away from these, this fish at this point, and it's hiding kind of under this tree. And I cast to it with a little kim, and I'm drifting this little kib into its zone. And <laughs> the biggest brown trout I've ever seen comes up from under this log and hits this fly with his nose and then swims back down into the hole again. And I lose it. Just unbelievable fish. Couldn't believe that just happened. And then so I took a break and took a second and left that, left that fish to be. Went back and got Steve and Paul and asked them to come and check this out because that was the biggest fish I'd ever seen. It was likely a seven pound brown trout, six or seven pound brown trout. Its head was like a bowling ball. And so we come back and I was, I composed myself and I was gonna try and catch this fish. First cast, I chucked that thing out there. Little Kim is drifting, it's drifting, it's drifting into the zone, whack! 14 inch brown trout comes up and smokes it. I'm just shaking. I catch this brown trout, I release it very quickly. Get it back out there again, nothing happens. Get it back out there again, nothing happens. This fish is just, is just gone. Uh, and I don't know if it's just sitting under that tree waiting for us to go away or if, <laughs> if it just moved off into the distance because there's plenty of places for it to go, but that's, that's definitely its home. Wow, what a fish. I cannot believe that fish lives there. So, and I just saw a mouse swim across this, this creek, and I just was waiting. I was waiting for something to happen. I was waiting for a big brown to come up and eat that thing. It never did. It made it. The mouse made it. This is a pretty special place. This is a very unique area. And there's not a soul around. We're the only people on this river right now. And we've been catching fish all afternoon. It's pretty spectacular. But not like that fish. <laughs> that fish could eat anything in this creek right now. Anything that it wanted to. So, I'm going to keep walking. I'm going to keep casting. And I'm going to keep hoping for a seven-pounder. Because that would be pretty cool. <laughs>